Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna. This is Shambri, Ramona, and Soleil Gaylord. And in this week's diary entitled, entitled A Microcosm in a Milkweed Part 2, because you heard Part 1 earlier this week, we will further discuss a fascinating and important plant that is found on our valley floor as well as throughout the West. Last week, we talked about the complex colonial organism that makes up a milkweed colony as well as the seed pods that endear all of us with their umbrella silky parachutes carrying the milkweed seeds. This week, we will continue to enlighten all of you listeners out there about the super super organism that is the common milkweed. Soleil, on to you, baby girl. So, to begin, one striking feature of the plant resident of our valley floor is that the entire life cycle of a number of insect species is tightly interwoven with it. There are at least 10 species of insects that feed on only common milkweed. The most well-known of these is the monarch butterfly, as you may know. The adult butterfly lays its eggs on the leaves of the common milkweed, and the larvae live from its leaves and and the milky sap the plants contain, and the adults drink from the flower nectar, although adults are not restricted to milkweeds. What is super fascinating about the monarch and some of the other milkweed specialists is that they do not just feed on the plants, digest the substances, and then build up their own body substances. Rather, they store some of the components of the milkweed sap, which is poisonous, in their body. Whoa. And you are all familiar with that when a milkweed stem or leaf is damaged, it exudes a white sap. All you have to do is scratch the stem with your fingernail and the white sap oozes out. And when a monarch larva bites into a leaf vein or a stalk, the sticky latex-containing milky sap seeps out and the larva ingests it. It draws out of the sap a group of toxic substances known as cardiac glycosides, and instead of breaking them down or excreting them, it stores them in its tissue, which is pretty fascinating. Um, interesting that the concentration of cardiac glycosides in the tissue of a monarch is substantially higher than it is in the tissue of common milkweed. So the toxins seem to amplify in the monarch. It is not only the larva that sequester these substances, they are also retained in the adult, which has actually gone through the complete metamorphosis from caterpillar to butterfly. So part of the milkweed becomes an essential part of its insect predators? Is that what I'm understanding here, Soleil? Yes, and cardiac glycosides are bitter tasting, and they disrupt the ionic balance of a number of different cell types in animals, including heart muscle. In high doses, they are fatal to an animal. Are you serious? But in nature, this will rarely happen since they cause vomiting in pre-lethal doses. Oh, brutal. We would imagine that common milkweed is protected against herbivores by the cardiac glycosides in its sap. Unsurprisingly, researchers did believe that by sequestering cardioglycosides, milkweed predators may be protected against their own predators. And beginning in the 60s, researchers began testing this hypothesis and concluded that much evidence is published to show that many prey species are well defended against predators by the presence of the poisons in the milkweed. And children that were born in my generation, which is the 60s, remember you those movies geezers. of the Blue Jays eating the monarch butterfly and then spitting it out. So milkweed is actually helping those insects that prey on it become better protected from their own predators. 
I guess this is, in a sense, a paradoxical situation in which a plant is providing protection for its predators, which in turn increases the likelihood that there will be more predators to feed on it. Um, Theoretically, one could think that these specialists might eradicate milkweed, right, Soleil? But neither the scientific literature nor, nor our own observations show that milkweed populations are significantly harmed by specialist herbivores associated with them. And it is not as if the monarch or other milkweed specialists have no predators. Both monarch adults and larvae are preyed upon, at least occasionally, by some birds, mice, ants, dragonflies, wasps, and that the larvae can be parasitized by flies and wasps. Whoa. Another really cool thing to know is that most of the milkweed specialists that sequester those cardiac glycosides are brightly colored orange and black. Yeah, actually, we learned about that in AP Bio. Um, One could interpret such coloring as warning coloration and aposmatic coloration. The theory that bright colors and patterns evolved as a warning sign to predators that signals keep off. Biologists notice that most brightly colored cardiac glycoside-storing herbivores tend to move around the plant a good deal when feeding, eating only small amounts and rarely doing significant damage even to a single shoot. Whereas in contrast, conspicuous caterpillars of the milkweed tussock moth aggregate on a shoot and they just denude the whole thing, leaving only the skeleton and the larger veins. And interestingly, these tussock caterpillar moths, which also sequester cardiac glycosides, metamorphose into non-conspicuous, they're cryptic actually, they look just like the the plants that they're on, into non-conspicuous nocturnal mass. And they do not sequester an appreciable amount of those cardioglycosides. So they're, they don't have the poisons in them, and they're uh, not conspicuous, brightly orange and black colored. So wait, I'm wondering, what happens to the bright colored cardioglycosides laden butterflies? So do you know the answer to that? Well, as an adult, the monarch butterfly migrates south. The monarch East of the Mississippi flies far as 3,000 miles to Mexico. 3,000, you heard that. Girls where and boys. they overwinter. Amazingly, these butterflies fly from their summer breeding range, which spans more than 250 million acres, which is a large amount of space, to their winter roosts that cover less than only 50 acres. What? Often to the exact same trees year after year. This expansive summer range corresponds precisely to the range of the common milkweed and a number of other milkweed species. Along their route of migration, they feed on milkweed nectar and the nectar of other flowers. Their range then contracts to the small overwintering area in Mexico, where they are temporarily and spatially separated from their milkweed. So there's no milkweed down there. However... And incredulously, they still carry small traces of the plant in their body through cardiac glycosides. Then, you guys get this, next spring they migrate back north and many of these adults mate, lay eggs, and die in the southeastern U.S. Their offspring then feed on southern milkweeds, metamorphous, and the adults, like you mom, fly north to find common milkweed flowering in the northern summer. And the life cycle begins anew, all over again. So we all are at least familiar with the monarch and that the life history of an individual monarch can span nearly a whole continent. The life history of a red milkweed beetle, however, is much more tightly linked to a local common milkweed population and equally fascinating 
tell us about this, Soleil? About the time a colony of milkweed begins to flower, bright red milkweed beetles crawl out of the ground and spread out onto milkweed shoots, an insect version of flowering. They crawl around on the plants and may fly short distances and don't leave the area of the colony. They then begin feeding partly on leaves but mostly on flowers. When a milkweed colony is at a high point in flowering, the red milkweed beetle has its peak in population density. The adults live for about three to four weeks, which corresponds to the main phase of flowering. The synchrony between adult beetles and flowering milkweed is striking. In a colony that flowers later in the year, the beetles emerge later. Wow. The beetles mate and the female moves to a nearby hollow-stemmed grass plant and nibbles a hole in the stem, crawls inside, and lays her eggs. When the eggs hatch, the larvae crawl down into the ground and move into the milkweed rhizomes. There, they begin to feed exclusively on milkweed rhizomes. They can do considerable damage to short sections of a rhizome, but never significantly are a detriment to the milkweed. While the colorless larvae are busily feeding below the ground on the rhizomes, the fiery red adults die. The larvae feed until early fall when they move out of the rhizomes and overwinter in the soil near the rhizomes as large pre-pupae. They do not feed during this time. Both milkweed and pre-pupa are quiescent during the winter. Which means they're not doing anything except sitting there. Only when the soil reaches a temperature of about 60 degrees do the pre-pupa become active through metamorphosis. It forms a pupa out of which the adult beetle soon emerges. It breaks through the cocoon and digs its way out of the soil to emerge in a forest of milkweeds where it begins to feed. The next adult generation begins in its short life. A circle of life, just like the butterfly, only all within the colony of milkweed. So when we reflect on such relationships between two kinds of organisms, a plant and an animal, the boundary between the two begins to dissolve. And I like this philosophical thought. We can no longer think of the plant without the animal or the animal without the plant. Normally we think of the plant and the animal that feeds on it as two separate organisms that interact. It is challenging, in fact, not to describe them in such terms. But we can ask the fascinating question, where does do organisms end? Clearly, the milkweed is unthinkable without its animal association, associations. Excuse me. Just as the animals cannot be described or understood without the milkweed, milkweed's pollination is wholly dependent upon insects, just as many insects are dependent upon milkweed for food and reproduction. Therefore, we must transcend taxonomic boundaries when we look at the fullness of an organism's life. We can begin to see organisms as intersecting relationships that are part of the greater web of life. In the case of common milkweed, this is especially evident, since even some of its physical substances, as for example, cardiac glycosides, as we talked about, become a part of various animal species. From an evolutionary perspective, we need to begin imagining that the lives of common milkweed and its specialist insects have been related to each other for a long period of time, going back all the way to mid-tertiary in the case of the red milkweed beetle. They have co-evolved and have a history together. They belong to each other or, as one might see it, are part of each other. In my years studying milkweed and prairie dogs, I have learned that one of the key realizations of an ecological evolutionary perspective is that what appear today to be separate entities are in fact interconnected. 
As one biologist has stated, the process of coevolution between plants and their natural enemies, including viruses, fungi, bacteria, insects, and mammals, is believed by many biologists to have generated much of Earth's biological diversity. That this diversity is an expression of the interconnectedness between life forms is what we begin to understand and to appreciate when we concern ourselves with the life histories of intersecting organisms. I really like that. So when you all are driving and observing the milkweed stands along the milk, uh, the fence line when you're going to Montrose or the little stand that we have here on our valley floor spur driving out on the south side in these waning days of summer, consider them more carefully and maybe even pull over and take a look at that little microcosm that's going on there. Such a whole organism as the milkweed lends to both the depth and breadth. We begin to see its uniqueness with all the details. Inasmuch as we are able to do just that, a story of this organism's unique way of being emerged. Holistic knowledge creates the basis of a moral relation to the world, and the story of an organism always leads beyond itself to a larger web of relations with other organisms and elements of the environment, as you've probably realized listening into our show. And there's no isolation in the living world. If we attend closely to the specific qualities, for instance, of milkweed, monarch butterfly, butterfly or even milkweed beetle, and at the same time become vividly aware of how these qualities intersect and are mutually dependent, only then do we begin to gain insight into the truly ecological nature of life. As Aldo Leopold puts it, we can only be ethical in relation to something we can see, feel, understand, love, or otherwise have faith in. Very insightful quote, if I may say so myself. Uh, we hope you guys have enjoyed the show, per usual, and Soleil, drum Thank roll. Thank you for listening to Microcosms in a Milkweed on Voices of the Valley, Flora and Fauna, and... Part two. Thank Part two. You. Thank you, Kodo. Kodo. Thank you, Kodo.